need to put more on that list. More? Yes, what more. In, what in the world can I put more? Let's see. Sneakers, backpack, five pairs of jeans, eight shirts. Hmm. I wonder what else I need. Oh, I know. You also need a CD player, a new computer, and some roller blades. Wait, a roller skate. And how about a scooter? A scooter? Yep. Oh. A scooter. Okay. <clears throat> what? See? What? See? Need to put what? More. what? What are y'all doing? We're uh, making a list, Daddy. Well, sounds like you two are making a Christmas wish list there. Um, no, Eddie, it isn't a wish list. It's my need list. Are you sure? Yep, need. My mom told me to start writing down all the things I would need for school. Yep. Um, <clears throat> those don't sound like needs to me. They sound like wants. What? And how do you know what a girl needs, Eddie? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I guess I don't, but it just sounds like a scooter. You really don't need that. Nope. And a CD player? Hmm. Nope. Really don't need that either. Hmm. I guess I never stopped to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. I thought I needed all of these things. Well, you do, don't you? You need a CD player to listen to all your favorite music. And you need a scooter. Wait a minute. I keep saying scooter, Josie, but you don't have arms. Oh, brother. Remember, you need a skateboard. That'll be good. Uh, and uh -oh. you need all these so you can have fun after school. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I guess I need oh, these things. Besides, my parents are Christians and they love Jesus. Mm -hmm. The Bible says Jesus will give me everything I need. So, if my parents obey God, they will also give me everything I need. God will work through them to meet my needs. So, <clears throat> if I give this list to my mom and dad, I'll get it, right? Well, slow down there a little bit. You know, the Bible says Jesus will give us everything we need, but not necessarily everything we want you to. What? What do you mean, Eddie? Ain't they the same thing? Well, um, I do know there is a difference between what we need and what we want, Callie Mae. Yeah, that's huh. right. Like, take a look at your list. Are you looking at it? Looking. I'm looking at it. Well, some of Looks those things on there are what you need, like sneakers and a backpack. But I wonder, do you really need five new pairs of jeans? Uh-huh. Yeah. You do? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, how about two? Well, uh, and do you really right. need a scooter? Yeah. No scooter, remember? No arms. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Anyways, they are fun, but you don't need one. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm starting to get it. What? Well, so you're saying... Uh-huh. ...is I could get by with less than what I want. Oh, but how can you get by? You need them all, Josie. Trust me, you really do. You need all them things. All of these things yeah. and all the things on your list, yeah. we need them all. Oh. Yep. Oh, brother. There is no way you need a new CD player, girl. What? What? Oh, I suppose you're right, Eddie. Think about it. Jesus is the bread of life. He gives us all we need, especially spiritually. But he will also take care of our physical needs as well, you two. So how do you know if it's something you need versus something you want? Well... I guess you could ask yourself the question, could I live without this? Wow. Can if you? I ask that question, Eddie, I'm going to have nothing on my list. Ooh. Oh, brother. Sure you will. Nope. Yeah. 
you probably need a few new clothes, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess I do. Some of my clothes from last year are getting small, and my old mm -hmm. backpack is ripped. Um, wait a minute, Josie. I need you to explain the backpack thing to me, please. What do you mean? How do you wear a backpack? Oh my, Callie Mae, really? Yeah. Mine yeah, really, Callie Mae. Special made. It goes around my neck and ties around my waist. Oh, okay. Well, Josie, I guess we're gonna have to start a new list. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Eddie? Yeah. I think so. And maybe you should pray about it, too. Yeah. You know, God will show you what you need, and, you know, you'll get your needs met. But don't we ever get anything we want from God? Good question. I was wondering the same thing. Yeah. <sighs> Sometimes God will even surprise us with what we want as well as what we need. Hey, yeah. you know what? I know what I'll do. Uh-huh. What is that? I'll make two lists. One Sounds of like things I idea. need and one of things I want. That is awesome. Then, then guess what? My what? mom and dad can decide what to really get me. Awesome hmm. idea. Yeah, yes. that's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I knew y'all come around sometime. All right, well, Josie, we got to go make our list. Wait, then are we going shopping? Yeah. Oh, brother. All right. Bye, everybody. See y'all later. Bye-bye. I'm going to go keep them straight. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Those guys are something else, aren't they? And you know what? Every Sunday, if we're listening, we learn something from them, right? Awesome job. Our children are leaving now for Children's Church. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. It's good to see you today. Thank you for being here. A pastor always gets a little concerned this time of year. When you, before even the midweek comes, you know of five families that are going to be away. Heading for salt water, things of that nature. But we're glad that you're here and thank you so much. There's nothing wrong with salt water. Amen. <laughs> I love salt water. This morning we're going to continue our uh, series. I actually just began it. We introduced it a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I mentioned that I was going to take the fruit of the Spirit one at a time, as we'll read in the passage, Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22, where the Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, this is more than just a, a cute little illustration in Scripture. This passage of Scripture is telling us that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, the Spirit will produce in us certain things. We were singing earlier about being redeemed. And then subsequent to that, we were singing about being changed. Amen. And as the Lord changes us, after we come to Him, His working in our lives bears certain fruit, certain things that you can see, things that are consistent throughout we're not talking about the gifts of the Spirit now, which the Lord gives to every man severally as he will, where some get this gift and some get that gift. That's another time. That's not what we're talking about. Today we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And everything we read in this list should be exhibited and developed in the life of a born-again Christian. Amen. Everything. And so the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit or what you should be able to see hanging on the tree of a Christian's life is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
And I'll just stop there. We'll talk about some of the rest of that later. Those are the things that are mentioned. So much so that as you look at the diagram I've put on the screen, the fruit of the Spirit, if we were to take love, which we're doing this morning as our subject, actually love could be considered the umbrella under which all these other things function. Um, until love is developed in the life of a Christian, uh, there's probably not going to be much long-suffering. Until love is there, there's not going to be much kindness. And we could develop that as we will in the next few weeks and see how that even though this list is here, and most of us could quote it, and we could just kind of spit it out and go on our merry way. If we do, we've missed the whole point. Because here is some valuable teaching in the New Testament where Christian character is defined, illustrated, and we're supposed to be able to identify what a Christian looks like and how a Christian acts. Could somebody say amen? amen. So this morning, we're going to be talking about love, and it is, um, we may go deeper into all these things than you've ever considered before, because most of the time we just read the list and go on our merry way. We've already introduced this. Uh, text before one Sunday, and this morning we are specifically focusing on love. And so basically everything we're going to talk about today is how to understand love, how to define love, what love looks like, uh, real love I'm talking about from the Word of God. So I hope you will um, be forbearing with me today. That's one of the the things on the list there. I hope you'll bear with me uh, and and think with me. Some people like to think. Some people don't want to think. All of us need to think. And so as we develop this today, I hope you will think with me and let the wheels turn. Um, I'll just give you a snidbit here that I'm going to refer to later in the sermon. But yesterday, I, this week in preparation for the sermon... I unearthed a fascinating statistic. And so yesterday, as Joy and I, we, we'd gone out to eat to kind of celebrate, and we came back in. And as we were coming in, I said, I, I want to share this with you. Have, have you ever heard of it? So I posed a question to her. What is the percentage, what is the divorce rate percentage in the United States and in the modern world as we know it? Well, that's pretty well an easy one to answer. And she answered it right off. She said about half, 50%. And it is true, the divorce rate in our culture today is 50 to 55%. 50 to 55% of marriages end in divorce. That's the way it works in our country. Now, that doesn't mean it works right, does it? That's not God's will. That's not the way it's supposed to work. But that's that's what we have to work with, what we deal with. On the other hand, there are marriages in some part of the United, in some parts of the world and in the United States too, that are arranged marriages. And I asked Joy, I said, do you know what an arranged marriage is? And she said, yeah. And I said, what is it? And she said, well, it's when maybe the parents choose the mate for their son or their daughter. And I said, that's correct. And that's, that happens many parts of the world. It's the norm in many parts of the world. I said, if you would guess the percentage of arranged marriages that end in divorce. And um, I don't, I, I think I'll let some of you guess. Now, we, we know that 50 to 55% of the marriages in America end in divorce. That's where we fall in love, by the way. What about in those parts of the world where the young man may have never met the young woman, the young woman may have never met the young man, but they've been selected for each other by their parents and they're put together. What is the divorce rate among arranged marriages? Do I have some guesses? 90% Howard says. My goodness, we're all over the place from 10% to 90%. Statistics tell us that from 4 to 6% of the, 
of arranged marriages end in divorce. Can you imagine that? Only four or five or six out of a hundred arranged marriages end in divorce. Whereas where in America we wait for somebody to fall in love, 55% end in divorce. I'll submit to you there's a message there if we will think today together. We'll get to that in just a few moments. I wanted to just lay that on the table before you. All of the fruit of the Spirit kind of issues from and develops in our lives from love. To this idea, the Scripture would lend its support. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible elevates love. By talking about several different things, it talks about prophecy, it talks about tongues, it talks about giving, it talks about even giving your life to the death for the gospel. All these things are talked about, but then as you read 1 Corinthians 13, after mentioning all those things, knowledge and understanding and revelation and all that stuff, it ends by saying the greatest of these is what? Love. So love is really elevated, is it not, in that passage. In John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. John 13, 35. Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if you want to identify what Christians look like, if you want a litmus test, if you will, if you really want to be able to judge if somebody is a group of people are Christians or not, here's the test. By this. Shall all men know you're my disciples? If what? If you have love one to another. That's a pretty important test there in that scripture, isn't it? It is not only an important test. It is the test. The litmus test as to whether you're Christians that you love one another. You take a group of people from different backgrounds, different ages, different ethnic groups, and you put them all together. They're going to have to have love. And love has to come through the work of God in their lives that they're able to look past differences and, and blend together and really come together in unity. By this will all men know you're my disciples. Everybody will recognize it. That is, if you have love one to another. It's a very important thing. In Ephesians 5, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, in that passage, there's this theme developed quite beautifully by the uh, Apostle Paul as he talks about how wives should submit to their husbands, husbands should love their wives, and what love will produce in a marriage. And then he, he aligns that side by side with what Christ has done for the church. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So we see these two themes develop, marriage and Christ in the church. And the love that elevates both of those relationships and makes them possible. But that particular chapter in the Bible ends up this way. Um, but the greatest of these is love. Well, that was there. In this one it says, this is a great mystery, but what I'm really talking about is Christ in his church. But love is the central theme in that passage. All of these chapters... Tell us how important God lives, uh, God's love is, and love is in the, the person's life who is a follower and a believer in the Lord, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, the Bible tells us that God is love. That's significant too, isn't it? So when we're looking through the scripture, Old Testament and New, we're not looking at insignificant things that don't matter. We're, we're seeing love take the, the preeminent place. It's elevated basically beyond any other thing as it relates to what we are supposed to have seen in our lives and what we're supposed to become. Now that we've established the primacy of love, let's see love illustrated, described, and modeled in the Bible. Now how many have ever uh, heard of the law of first mention. Well, I thought some had heard about that because I mentioned it many times. <laughs> that is to say, the first time you see it in the Bible, the first time you see a particular word in the Bible, it's noteworthy. It's significant. 
So if we today are going to be talking about love, let's just go back in our Bibles and see the first time in the Bible that the word love is mentioned. Now, if you were like me and I was assuming, I probably would assume that Adam loved Eve and that it would be stated in the Bible or that Eve loved Adam and it would be stated in the Bible. But you know what you would be doing if you were assuming that? That's not where it's talked about. We keep going in our Bibles all the way over in the book of Genesis to Genesis 22. Anybody remember there was a man named Abraham and Abraham wanted a son. He finally had a son. His son's name was Isaac. And one day the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, whom you love. That's the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. It's a passage of scripture that helps us understand and contemplate then the relationship between parents and their children. Now, generally speaking, there's always uh, um, um, uh, places where this is not exactly true. But generally speaking, is it not true that the love of a mother and a father for their children generally is stronger than most anything you can imagine? People love their children, right? And so... I think it's significant. Parental love, and we can understand parental love, those of us who have children. We love our children. And the next time this is mentioned, and when that young man Isaac um, is about to receive a wife, you notice the word I use there? I didn't say go get a wife, I said receive a wife. Because... Isaac's marriage was an arranged marriage. And Abraham said, I don't want Isaac marrying one of these women around here in this wicked, vile country where we live. And he said to his servant, I want you to go back to our homeland and choose a wife. Said this to one of his servants. I want you to go choose a wife for my son Isaac. So the servant goes back to their homeland, chooses a wife, identifies this this particular woman, and brings her back to where Isaac is. And I want us to read that. Well, in in Genesis chapter 24, verse 2, the Bible says, Abraham said to the oldest servant of the house who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. We're talking about a custom here of making a vow and a promise. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. He sends his servant off to choose a wife. And so the Bible tells us, as we go all, the whole story is told when we get all the way down in chapter 24 to verse 63. The Bible says, as the servant and Rebecca were coming back, Rebecca was her name, they were coming back. The Bible says, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. If I knew that somebody was out picking a wife for me, I'd probably be meditating too, wouldn't you? <laughs> And so the Bible says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening and he lifted his eyes and looked and there the camels were coming. Then Rebecca lifted her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel for she had said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant says, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. He loved her. That's the second time in the Bible the word love is mentioned. The first time it had to do with the love with parents toward their children. The second time it had to do with the love of a man for his wife. But notice it wasn't a fall in love type of situation. It was an arranged marriage. 
Now, I don't know about you, if you've ever thought about arranged marriages or not, but I think I might have a problem with that one. Because I don't know what somebody else might choose for me. Don't you think you would like some say and some control over who your mate is? So this morning when, as we go through this, don't anybody, please, don't anybody leave this service today and say, Pastor Ron said we needed arranged marriages. Because I'm not promoting that at all. But I'm going to tell you something this morning. There is an element in arranged marriages that we need to wed with our falling in love idea when it comes to marriage. Because here's the deal. In our culture, we fall in love. And it's so easy to fall out of love six months later when things don't go quite right and when we get disappointed and when we don't like the way things are going and when that person says something or burns the beans or or some stupid, it doesn't take anything, does it? It's just craziness. And so there there is something here that we want to develop and understand about love today as we work our way through the scripture. Now, I'm going to reach way back. I hope nobody's going to criticize me for this. Uh, most of you know I do some weird things sometimes. So I've gone all the way back to 1955. The year my parents were married. This song is older than I am. I'd like for you to listen to this song by a gentleman named Mr. Frank Sinatra. Listen to the song. And I'd like for you to particularly... As they prepare the lights, I'd like for you to focus on the screen and and soak in the words to this song as this is sung. Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage This I tell you, brother You can't have one without the other Love and marriage, love and marriage It's an institute you can't disparage Ask the local gentry And they will say it's elementary Try, try, try to separate them It's an illusion Try, try, try And you will only come To this conclusion Love and marriage Love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage Dad was told by mother You can't have one, you can't have none You can't have one without the other Anybody remember that song from when it was current? <laughs> okay, he's got another verse. Try, try, try to separate them. It's an illusion. Try, 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 and you will only come. To this conclusion, love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage Dad was told by mother You can't have one You can't have none You can't have one without the other Please <laughs> Brother Frank, <laughs> um, I got to thinking about that song. Somehow it popped into my mind and I Googled it and came up with that. Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. 
When you talk about a horse and a carriage, and I had that mental imagery in my mind, got to thinking about that. Do you know what? With a horse and a carriage, there's some work to be done. If you don't believe me, ask the horse. Right? But also, if that carriage doesn't work, if it's got one wheel, if both of them don't turn. In other words, the carriage has got to work, and the horse has got to work. In order for that horse and carriage to function. When it comes to marriage, the, the husband, the wife, both have to work. Both have to do certain things in order to make marriage work. Am I right? Well, I got curious because I read that Mr. Sinatra was married four times. <laughs> and then I got to examining some of the names of his other songs. That's life. I did it my way. That's what got him in trouble. (laughs) Fly me to the moon? Are you kidding me? And I got you under my skin. (laughs) I'm thinking, he's singing from experience now as he talked about those things. That's a little humorous, I know. But you've heard about people saying that marriage, they, they know a marriage was made in heaven. You know what? Marriages aren't made in heaven. Marriages are made right here on earth. And it takes work. Now, I don't want us to to get in a a little rut here where we're focusing on love within marriage only. I'm using this as an illustration because the Bible did. But what we need to understand is it takes work. It takes work to make marriage work. It takes work to make love work. If we went back to that umbrella that was up a few moments ago, I'm going to tell you, there's some work involved in walking with love. Things like forgiveness and forbearance and, and patience and kindness and goodness. It's, it's hard work sometimes because if we respond as people respond to us, We're probably not going to be walking in love. But if we walk in love, we're going to respond in a different way than the way the world does. Amen? And love is going to permeate every single area of our lives. It's going to be seen like a a light that shines. It's just going to light up everything else and grow and develop in our lives in different ways. Marriages are not made in heaven. No marriages are made. They are formed. They are forged. They are worked at and they are worked through here on earth. You see, we have been conditioned to define love a certain way. Think with me now. I could even go so far as to say that our culture has embraced a definition of love, excuse me, a definition of love that is terribly flawed. Do you think our definition and understanding of love in America is terribly flawed? It's because I think, this has contributed at least, that soap operas in Hollywood are responsible. Now, when I was a little boy, they used to, I don't know if they still call them soap operas or not. You may not even know what that is for some of you younger ones. But I remember there were programs like uh, The Edge of Night and, help me out somebody, As the World Turns, Elvis said As Your Stomach Turns, Days of Our Lives, uh, All My Children, uh, y'all better stop, you're making yourself now, you're exposing yourself. But you know what happens at, now, if you don't know what soap operas are, they come on every day. It's a, it's like a serial thing and it's a story that's developed and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And it just, and, and it, 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 from my perspective, what little I've seen, which would be flipping through the channels because I can't watch that garbage. It's nauseating to me, but you can be married one day and decide you don't want this one and go get another one. Is that kind of the way it works? And I don't even watch them, but my guess would be in, in these days in which we live in now, now they not only men finding another woman, now the men are finding a man and the women are finding women. I would imagine that's going on because that's kind of what's happening in our society today. Now, if we're going to sit down and watch, incidentally, when I was little, I remember it being talked about in church that you Christians, you shouldn't watch that. That's feeding your mind things that you have no business feeding your mind on. True? 
And so as we've got decades now and decades and decades, if I'm 62 and I can remember when I was little, it's been going on for 50, 60 years. Since television basically came out, they started these, if you want to know why they call them soap operas, it was because like dial soap and the soap companies, because most of the time women were not working in those days, they were at home. So they were watching the soaps on TV. And if you want to sell something to women in their home washing clothes, you sell them soap and dishwashing detergent. So it became known as soap operas. Seriously. That's why they're called soaps. Because it was the soap companies who were financing those and pushing them. So what we have then is decades of, my goodness, I don't think this is over-exaggerating, garbage. Decades of garbage being fed into the airwaves and the minds of generations now of people. Just garbage. And we sit down and we're entertained with that garbage. Well, you know as well as I do, garbage in, garbage out. And it begins to affect our thinking. It thinks our, it affects our minds. It affects our behavior because we mimic what we see on television. And so we have now a, a definition of the way we think about love. I gotta tell you, it's all messed up. In our culture, the way we think about love is all messed up. Now, in our days, we think we fall into love. And you know, I've already stated, the problem with that is if you think you can fall into love, then you're okay with falling out of love as well. But that's not the way it is biblically. Couples can stand before the proper authority and repeat vows and say one thing, but six weeks or six months or six years later... One of them says, well, I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. This reveals a basic flaw in the way love is defined among us. In 1989, Gary Smalley and John Trent, relationship experts and family counselors, wrote a bestseller. Now, they wrote 16 bestsellers. So these were very smart, very intelligent, and Christian men. They wrote this book, this bestseller, titled, Love is a Decision. Love is a Decision. Love is not an emotion. Love is a decision. You stand before a minister of the gospel or a magistrate or other legally appointed or proved officiant and utter these or similar words. I take you to be my wedded wife. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And here too, I pledge you my faithfulness. And most all vows are written somewhere along that lines where we say those things and we promise to do those things. And then when the wedding is over, we treat it like it really didn't matter. If I'm right, tell me amen. See, you've, quote, fallen in love. You've been physically attracted to one another. The, the hormones are raging and you've planned a wedding. You have high hopes. You've said a few words in front of a few people. But then all of a sudden, things take a turn. And somebody says, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Let me tell you something. Life is full of situations where you can say, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Right? Then suddenly, just as quickly as you fell into love, you fall out of love. The problem? Real love is a decision, not an emotion or a feeling. I want to go back. To the arranged marriage. In an arranged marriage where mom and dad over here pick a mate for their son and match him up over here with mom and dad here with that daughter and they arrange that marriage. Sometimes never having met one another and put them together and because of their culture, 
the young man and the young woman are willing to cooperate with this system. And they make a decision. Yes, you're going to be my wife. And yes, I'm going to be your husband. They make that decision and their divorce rates are 4 to 6%. And in America, where we fall in love, it's 55%. Love is a decision, not an emotion. Real love. Now, personally, I understand that there is a blending of the two in our culture. But I know which one carries the most weight based on the percentages of divorce, right? It tells me not all the time are people making decisions about their relationship based on, on um, what's right and what's wrong and what they promised. But they're making the decisions on what's convenient. Now remember, this is not a, the sermon, as much as I'm talking about this sermon is not about marriage. This sermon is about understanding love. Because the Bible tells us we're supposed to love one another. And we're supposed to make a conscious decision. As a Christian, as a child of God, I am not going to hate anybody. I am going to love everybody. It is a decision that you make. Sometimes it's going to be difficult to love everybody. But you have to do it because we're Christians. If you understand as a Christian, you're supposed to love everybody. Would you just say amen? amen. See, and, and it doesn't come natural. It, as a matter of fact, there's people out there that will get on your last nerve. I hope you're not married to them. But there are people who are, they'll get on your last nerve. Well, how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to go through life like so many people are today who are just so touchy and so, so susceptible to irritations that everybody they see and everybody they hear and everybody they're around gets on their nerves and they can't get along with anybody. In case you haven't noticed it, we're raising a generation of people like that. They want what they want when they want it. And if they don't get what they want when they, they want you to give it, then they're going to get mad about it and pout and put it on Facebook and every other thing. It is, it is a symptom of, a, of the generation that we're raising now. If you don't believe me, just follow Facebook and look at all the belly aching and the whining and, the, and just the plain stupid junk that you see. It's, it's symptomatic of our society. So what we have to learn to do, we, Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther said, feelings come and feelings go. How many believe that? Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. Martin Luther said, however, he completed it by saying this. Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. So my point today is we have to learn to look at the word of God. Uh, number one, for what it promises us in our lives. And number two, for what our responsibilities are as Christians. And I think we've already uh, given enough credence to the fact that the word of God elevates love. And then the Bible says that as Christians, we have the spirit of God dwelling in us. And as Christians with the spirit of God dwelling in us, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit being in us is going to be love and the rest of that list, which we'll deal with later. But Christians have to love one another. That's why the Bible says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. It's elevated again. Remember Isaac and his arranged marriage? And these marriages are still popular in many areas of the world today. Four to six percent. It's not based on emotion. It's based on a decision. One time, once upon a time, a couple came to me who wanted to get married. And they, 
Oh boy, I'm going to tell you, they had been bit by the love bug, I'm telling you. And they just had to get married. And they came, I was their pastor, or I was the one, I'm not going to say too much. It wasn't here in this county. But they were in love and they wanted to get married. They came to me, Pastor, we want to get married. Will you do it? And um, I don't know that I had ever done this before, but for some reason I took out a legal pad and a pen. And I, I said, let's, let's make a list here and let's do pros and cons. So under pros, I let them name why they wanted to get married. Only one thing. What was it? We love each other. Okay, so I wrote down love on one side. Now, on the other side, I put cons. I said, now, let's um, examine what being married will mean. And, of course, I acted like I was thinking. Well, I was thinking, but, I mean, I acted like I was really thinking. I said, let's see. Um, If you get married, you're going to have to have a place to live. How much do you think rent's going to be? So we wrote down how much they thought they'd have to pay for rent. And I said, now you're going to have to eat because you can't live on love. Um, how much do you think you're going to spend on food every month? And so we made a list of how much food they were going to have to have. I said, now what about uh, your car, car payment? We wrote that down. Insurance. And, oh, we just went through every area of your life. See, once you've been married a while, you know these things, right? Before you get married, you don't have a clue. You think you can live on love. And so we made this list and we got it all. Uh, maybe I was a little mean, but we got this list and we had all this stuff on a sheet of paper and I got the total. And I said, now let's add another column. I said, now how much do you make? And we put down what they made, one made. And I said, now how much do you make? And we put down and we added it up. They weren't even close. Weren't even close. Like they needed five times more money than what they had to get married. And I said, it looks like to me we got a problem here. Now you want them to get married because you're in love, but you are in no way prepared for marriage. You can't even live. There's no way this will work. You're going to have to get better jobs. You're going to have to get prepared. You got to do this. You got to do that and the other. And their response was they immediately burst Not into tears, but into laughter. Because they recognized what a foolish thing it was for them to think about marriage. But they felt like they were in love. No, they did not get married. It didn't last long. And then they were with somebody else. Real love is a decision. And one that's been thought through. It's one that you make a commitment to. You see... And pardon me for using myself as an example, but I can't use you as an example because I'm not in your skin. I know as a Christian and as a, as, a, as a pastor, but more so as a Christian, I've already made up my mind. I'm going to love people. Now, it, it, it's not contingent upon how they treat me or whether they like me or whether they agree with me. All that's irrelevant. My mind's already made up. You don't have to do anything for me to love you. I'm just going to love you. Because that's what the Bible says I'm supposed to do. So you could you could theoretically name anything you wanted to do to me. It might would hurt my feelings. It might make me angry. It may be disappoint me in you. But you will never do anything that will make me not love you. And you say, I don't believe that. No, because love is a decision. You can decide you're going to love someone. You can decide you're not going to hold grudges. You can decide you're not going to retaliate and, and, and do things like the world does. You make that decision. That's what love is. We make that decision that we're going to do the right thing by that person and do it the way that Jesus would do it. Listen, that's why God's word says the following. Listen to this. This is so revealing. The Bible says you're supposed to love your neighbor. Does it? Does it? The Bible says you're supposed to love your neighbor. It didn't say you were supposed to love your neighbor if they mow the grass on time. 
It doesn't say you're supposed to love your neighbor as long as they don't play the music too loud. It doesn't say you're supposed to love your neighbor as long as they paint the house when you want it painted. Do you get the idea? There were no, there were no requirements put on that whatsoever. No restrictions. No, it is simple. Love your neighbor. Amen. And then the Bible says, love your wife. Not only when she cooks you the kind of supper you wanted. Or not only when she does things just the way you want them done. But when she doesn't do those things. Or maybe she has a tood one night. Y'all know what a tood is, right? That's an attitude. It's a tood. Maybe she has a tood. Maybe she's... Um, Boy, I got really easy to get in trouble here, couldn't I? Or maybe it's it's the other way around. You all know, y'all know about tudes. You know, you've seen a few of them. The Bible says you don't just love your wife when things are just right. The Bible says love your wife. True? And the Bible says love your husbands. Teaches us that wives are supposed to... Love their husbands, although he may irritate or anger you. Right, husbands, love your wives. Even if the honey-do list gets longer and longer and longer. Love your wives. Love your husbands. It's not as long as they do all the things you want and enjoy. No, love your husband. Love your wife. Love your neighbor. And then the Bible says love one another. True? Uh, there's no, there's no qualifications there. You, you may be disappointed with others. You may be, they may hurt you. They may lie on you. They may, the Bible didn't give any qualifications otherwise. It just says love one another. And here's the one that really gets me. Love your enemies. Mm, that's right. And who said that? Jesus said it. Love your enemies. And those who despitefully use you. And say all manner of evil against you falsely. Love them. And the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love. The way that people are going to identify whether we're Christians or not... Depends largely on how we treat one another with our tudes and all the other things that go in the mix. Amen? We have to grow up in Christ. We have to love one another. We have to forbear one another, which means put up with one another. We have to forgive one another. We have to be long-suffering with one another. We have to have kindness. We have to have gentleness. We have to have goodness. We have to have peace. We have to have all these things because they all kind of issue from love. Mm. Tell you what. Pastor's telling the truth today. And you have to make a decision. In order to do this, I'll promise you, you cannot trust your emotions to navigate that list. You have to make a decision ahead of time. Now, everything we've just learned about love, and don't limit it only to marriage, but we understand that applies to all of our relationships. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's from love that all the other things flow. It's not just a silly little passing emotion. It's the product of the Holy Spirit in the life of a born again, redeemed child of God that enables us to do what we would not be able to do otherwise. About 35 years ago, I preached one of my first sermons in my first pastorate. And that morning, this particular morning, as I gave the invitation, there was a young man in the church that came forward and he bowed on his knees. I think he was the first convert I ever had as a pastor. He grew up in the church. He had gotten away from 
the Lord and was out in the world and hadn't been to church in years. And I was about his age, just a young guy in my 20s at the time. And he'd heard about that young pastor that was at that church. So he came in, I think, probably more out of curiosity than anything else. And that morning, he came down in his home church that he'd been away from for a long time. And he bowed on the altar, cried out to the Lord, and asked Jesus to forgive him of his sins. Well, I did at the end of that service what I had always seen done when somebody would come down to the altar and pray. Generally, in those days, they'd get up would say, would you like to testify? So when I did that, I said, would you like to say something? His name was Keith. I said, Keith, would you like to say something? Well, he was, he was a, he was a mess. He'd been crying and when he said something very short and very simple, but very profound, when he got up from praying, I said, would you like to say something? He said, you feel like the Lord has saved you today? And he said, yes. I said, would you like to say anything? He said, I just love everybody. I don't know what was behind that statement. I don't know what grudges he had held, maybe. I don't know what precipitated that statement on his part. But I know one thing. It was biblically sound. That when the Spirit of God comes into your heart, when you're born again and the Spirit dwells within, He begins to produce fruit. And you'll find yourself loving people that you used to despise. So, I'm going to ask you to um, prepare to sing a song with me. It's an old song. So old, in fact, it's probably going to be a new song to many of you. I want to read some of the words to you. It goes like this. It's a prayer. Let me walk, blessed Lord, in the way thou hast gone, leading straight to the land above, giving cheer everywhere to the sad and the lone. Fill my way every day with love. And the chorus says, fill my way every day with love as I walk with the heavenly dove. Let me go all the while. With a song and a smile, fill my way every day with love. Would you stand with us as we sing? Let me walk, blessed Lord, in the way thou hast gone, leading straight to the
remain standing if you would. Don't know about you, but I want the Lord to teach me to love. Was that good? That was very good. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father, we thank you today for the instructions. We need to love one another. And we ask you that you teach us for the rest of our life, beginning today, to love one another as you would have it. To endure things we have to endure. To do it joyfully in a Christian manner because others are definitely paying attention to how we treat each other. And may we treat each other today, dear Father, with love. We thank you for those that have come today. We ask you to bless them throughout the week. May we see them Wednesday and next Sunday. And for all things, we'll continue to give you honor and praise in your precious name. Amen. Hope to see you tonight.